Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to continue our studies on unity, and we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 through 25. So you can begin to make your way there. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you, and uh, we'd love for you to take that home with you. If you don't have a, a Bible of your own, we'd love for you to take that home and use that. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front of it. It's going to let you know where to find the different books of the Bible. And then the large numbers in the text are going to be chapters, and the small numbers are going to be verses. So this morning we're in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 25. Let me read the text for us, and then we will, we will walk through this together. Starting in verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes and says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even when they will not listen, even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are all out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Paul has been building this argument over the last uh, few sermons in all of chapter 14 as he discusses the difference between prophecy and tongues and, and, and what role, if any, these play in a corporate worship context. And so for our purposes, kind of a Sunday morning gathering, what, what purpose, if any, do they serve in here? But amidst this argument, he, he's engaged and, and discovered that there are a number of people who are thinking about this, not in terms of of how their actions and how their beliefs and how their mindset affects those around them, but they're primarily concerned with, with how my thoughts and how my actions affect and impact me. And this is, this is where most of us find ourselves most immediately, is it not? Most of our thoughts, when we uh, give, give any considerable time to investigating something and thinking on something, most of our thoughts most immediately turn to me, myself, and I. How is this going to impact me? How is this going to impact my family, how is this going to impact my friends? But it all begins with the smallest uh, subset of that. It begins in an individual purpose. And so before Paul really moves to kind of finish out this discussion of tongues and prophecies, he calls them back to a centering of their mind. That's why he starts in verse uh, 20 there with kind of where their minds are at. Notice what he says. He says, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in an evil, but in your thinking be mature. How do most children think? Selfishly, right? Well, some of us as adults have, have managed to make it out of the maturing process, and, and so we're quite at home with the way of thinking uh, in, in the manner of being children. And so we've grown to be selfish adults. But, but typically, when you go to a child and you talk to them, you'll find they're, they're really at home. They're really, they don't need skills and training in raising them up to think selfishly. Wouldn't that be strange? If you've ever been around a two- or a three-year-old and be like, look, there are a whole host of, of two- and three-year-olds in this room. We've got a six of you. I'm going to give a sucker to one of you. What's going to happen? 
he's going to get beat down. Like somebody gave him sugar in the form of a stick, a stick is a weapon. We have to take the weapon from him, boys. And so they, they run to him and they try and take it from him. This is why we can't give suckers in the three-year-old classroom anymore. It, got, it, it, it headed to a uh, Lord of Flies place really fast last time. And so but we see what Paul is calling them in this kind of enlargement of their opinion of those around them. And he calls us to the same thing. When we begin to modify our behavior, not primarily on how things hit us and impact us, but when I begin to modify my behavior on the basis of how my behavior, how my beliefs, and how my articulations are impacting those around me, this is moving in a mature line of thought. And this is what he calls them to. Are you carefully considering how your opinions, are you carefully considering how your manners of existence and way of life are impacting those around you? Now, as he begins to apply this question directly to the issue of tongues and prophecy, those in Corinth, if they're honest, they have to say, well, oh, just not really. Not really. Because they're, they're not stopping to consider that other people, in terms of the gospel and its application in our lives, get to be more significant than we do. And so someone else, from my perspective, has to be more significant than I am. This is just kind of how the gospel unfolds. And, and when we take this and we begin to apply this, we find great ease at adapting and changing and becoming different. So Paul is going to give us, in some sense, uh, some, some markers, some, some ditch markers for we don't want to fall into this side of accommodationism. We don't want to fall into that side of, of, of intransigence and refusal to change. And he starts in a curious place. He starts in the book of Isaiah. And he says in verse 21, in the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me. Now, Paul is loosely quoting out of Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12. But what he's, uh, even, even before this, what he's getting at is what Moses said to the people in Deuteronomy 28. If you look in Deuteronomy 28, uh, around verse uh, 15, what he's communicating is, look, when you come into the land, if you refuse to follow the word of the Lord, if you kind of follow what your heart has for you, if you do whatever you want to do, and you don't follow his word, and you don't follow his precepts, God is going to bring a curse to you, right? He gives them the blessing, and then he gives them the curse. This is what's going to happen, basically, if you turn your back and you walk away from the Lord completely. And then verse 49 he says he's going to send a group of people down, and they're going to take you into captivity. They're going to have strange tongues. They're going to speak languages you don't understand. And so he's referring there in Isaiah to the Assyrian Empire. So the Assyrian Empire comes in, and they take Israel hostage, and they carry uh, Israel off into captivity. Now, if, if you've ever been uh, a minority culture, if you've ever been in a country where you don't speak a language and everybody around you is having conversation and you're standing there not knowing how to order your Big Mac or whatever that is, and, and you're, you're, you're seeking to engage in this and you're picking up little bits of words, it is disorienting, right? It's disorienting. But this is the manner of existence. This is the way that their life was going to be because they had disobeyed the Lord because they were taken away into captivity they're going to have people around them that aren't speaking a language they understand. They're not communicating in a way that makes any sense to them. And this is exactly what God is saying here. Even then, they will not listen to me. Because the, the, the failure to listen and hear the Lord 
in the tongues of those they couldn't possibly, possibly perceive. These four languages spoken around them are a reminder to them or should be a reminder to them of their failure to obey and adhere to the word of the Lord. So that's the situation Paul sets up. And this is what his whole argument is built on, right? And we know this because he turns around and says that thus, in essence, because you have these people and they're in this situation and it's completely disorienting and they don't understand what in the world is going on and they're like, yeah, 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 Big Mac cheese, no, no special sauce. Yeah, 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 I don't understand what you're saying. He said, thus, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Now, this is curious because in a couple of verses, it seems that he's going to say something different. But this all hinges around what we make of the word sign. Notice, he doesn't say, he doesn't say that tongues are for unbelievers. He says they are a sign for unbelievers. Those Israelites, when they're living in the midst of the Assyrians and they hear people all around them speaking a language they don't understand, it's a reminder to them of the active, present judgment of God and their alienation from God. And so for a non-Christian to see somebody stand up and to speak in tongues in the midst of a worship gathering is a pressing reminder to them that I don't belong that I'm alienated and far off from the Lord. But it does so in a bewildering way. It accomplishes this in in a confusing way. And the same thing is true, and I think the same thing is in effect for all those who don't have the gift of interpretation. So in the midst of a worship service, if you have somebody jump up and they're speaking in tongues, it's alienating, it is confusing, it is disorienting to all those who are Christians but are hearing no interpretation. It's not building them up. This is why Paul says, thus, on the basis of this example out of Isaiah, tongues are a sign for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign, right? It has special significance for the believer and not the unbeliever. Now, back in chapter 14 and verse 3 of 1 Corinthians, Paul had told us exactly how prophecies meant to function and the life and purpose of the believer, what the sign is. He says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, for their encouragement, and for their consolation. This is what prophecy is, is accomplishing and doing on behalf of the Christian. And so when we begin to think about this and kind of the principle at work here for what is happening What is happening, or what are things that we do that are disorienting, that are off-putting, that are confusing, and that are ostracizing for unbelievers? And I really think that's the principle that Paul is getting at there. They kind of flow out of, corporately, they kind of flow out of the mantra that says, man, we've never done it like that before. Have you ever heard that statement? Man, we hear it in business. The church really thought they cornered the market in it. Certainly, they use it to uh, to great extravagance. But this idea that just because something is new, it should be anathema. Just because something is new, it should be something we never step into. Just because something is new, it should be something that we just kind of, oh, I don't, I don't know about that. Man, praise God for the pneumatic tire, right? Praise God for the pneumatic tire. Praise God for the combustion engine. I love riding horses. I don't want to ride horses cross country. Praise God for, for airplanes, Amen. I'm reading this book that talks about Americans who travel to Paris 
in the, in the 1800s, about the 1830s. And at that point, in the 1820s, 1830s, they still hadn't perfected steam energy enough to where they could use those steam uh, liners to cross over the Atlantic. And so they're still propelled by wind. And they said that on just superb conditions, they can make it in three to four weeks. But in disastrous conditions, it could be as long as six to seven weeks. And they didn't have uh, vessels that were solely designated for, for you and I, for, for, for travelers. And so everybody's traveling in those terms on something that's meant to carry cargo. And so they're, they're scurried away. And so to read their diaries and talk about them being at dinner when a big swell hits, and they're all grabbing for plates in these things. I'm so thankful that I'm, when I'm flying and turbulence hits, I've got my belt buckle because I'm obedient, and, and, and maybe, my, maybe my juice spills a little bit, but I'm not grabbing plates and whatever. I'm yelling, calm down. And so we, we love the fact that technology has moved on, but the church in some sense is just, we're, we're terrified of what it looks like, and so we can become alienating. We can become alienating. And this is why in so many churches you see that, 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 that things that change, and so the way people dress on the platform and so you notice that, that I seldom wear a suit and tie. I promise that if you die, I will. I'll dress up for you. <laughs> the sad thing is you won't notice. <laughs> that's, that's more sad for me than you. But, and so we, we notice that there are things that change. The dress on the platform, the technology we use, the, the instrumentation that is employed. When the piano was first brought into the church, it was considered scandalous. I remember reading in seminary this book that would talk about, about worship and singing, and they wouldn't let the men and the women sing at the same time because they said, listen to this, listen to this, it was the carnal mixing of voices. Like, you've got to be in a special place of weird to consider that. It's this carnal mixing of voices. They said, we can't do that. We can't, we can't engage in that. And so the church can do things to alienate people who come in. The church I grew up in, I remember if you were a guest, <laughs> they would turn and they'd say, let's start on this section. Do we have any guests over here today? And man, I would just break out in sweat uh, for those guests. And they would be like, look, we see you. Sixth throwback. Would you stand and identify yourself, please? And so we had a lot of first and only time visitors. And so we, of course, recognize that there are things that we shouldn't do. But man, can I tell you that beyond the things that corporately that we do and, 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 and that we put people off, and there are a number of things we should carefully think through. There are a number of things that personally, that personally ways that, that we put people off. One of the ways we put people off, we put lost people off, is simply by being unengaged and uncaring. I mean, if you are a Christian, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, then you necessarily believe that without faith in Jesus, you, that you're headed for hell. You're headed for separation from God for all eternity. A place there's no coming back from, a place there's no second thoughts from. And if you're a follower or believer of Jesus Christ, you think that is the fate and end of all those who don't put their faith and trust in him, right? Right? Well, some of you do, and, and for the rest, I'll spend the rest of this time convincing and so that's necessarily what the gospel communicates, so that's what we believe. And so on the basis of this, we should have no ability to remain unengaged and aloof and uncaring. If we know that's the ultimate destiny of those who never hear the gospel, 
then it is incumbent, it's required, it's necessary, we should be burdened for radical gospel engagement of everybody we come into contact with. The primary motivator of the conversations we have with people is so that we might present the gospel in how we live and communicate the gospel in how we speak because we believe that eternity for this person hangs in the balance. Many of us are completely just unengaged, and this is why we never, engage, we never speak to and lost people never hear the gospel. Some of us, I mean, people know that you're a Christian because you're completely unapproachable. They know you're a Christian because they see your, your, your posts on social media. They know you're a Christian because they've heard you talk about other people. They know you're a Christian for all the terrible reasons that, that people don't come to the church. They know you're a Christian because, quite frankly, you, friend, are a hypocrite. You're the worst form of Christian. If we could take out a negative billboard, we would just put your face on it and all the things you say throughout the day, and it would drive people away in droves. And many of us, as we walk around the community and as we go to work and as we live in our neighborhoods, this is exactly what we are. We are negative billboards for faith in Jesus because you are hateful and you use the gospel and you use the Bible to abuse people. And I don't know why you do this because I see this nowhere in the sacred text. I see this nowhere in the Bible but it has become our pattern, it has become what we are known for, and it is driving people away from Jesus. But because we're uncaring, because we're aloof, because we're unengaged, we quite simply don't seem to care. So we're not standing up and speaking in tongues, but we're accomplishing the same thing nevertheless. Paul says prophecy is for the believer, and tongues are a sign for the unbeliever move out of being a sign of compromise and alienation for the unbeliever. And he goes on, and he begins to kind of explain within his cultural context what this would be like. So in verse 23, he says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues. So imagine that, that everybody in here is just, you know, just going on and on, and everybody's standing up, and, and everybody's saying something. We're not waiting for the next person to talk. Uh, interpretation's given no place in this context, and everybody's just shouting over the nether, seeking to be more sensational than the next person. And that's, you know, by and large, just what everybody's doing. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. He says, and, and imagine this scenario. The door back over there opens, and this unsuspecting person walks into the room. He says they're an unbeliever, an outsider. They're a person who either doesn't believe in Jesus or a person who is interested. They're curious. They want to know what this is exactly about. And they walk into that room. This is going to be the response. You guys are nuts. You're absolutely nuts. You're absolutely out of your minds. Now, culturally, within the context of Paul writing this, he's not trying to be pejorative. He's not trying to be hateful in, in essence, what the non-believer says when he walks in the midst of that room is, oh, this makes total sense. You guys are just like the cult of Dionysus. You guys are just like the cult of Cupid. You guys are just like the cult of Bacchus. I have a context and a framework of understanding. You guys are super weird. But it's okay because you're just like the whole rest of the culture. They find it an incredible impediment. They find it an, a devastating obstacle to be able to move past that and engage with the gospel. So when they hear this, when they, when they recognize, okay, look, so this is, this is kind of a big deal. We're creating an obstacle. We're creating an impediment to people coming to know Jesus. 
it should occur in their minds the question of how far is too far? How much is too much? What do we scale back? And this is the question that the church has really been wrangling with and wrestling with for a long time. How much God or how much of a display of intimacy with God and, and how much doctrine is too much in the place of worship? So number uh, over the, really the last couple of years, I've been watching this church, this particular church that, that sprang up and, and, it, and it began to grow and and when the church was first planted, I remember going on their website and I clicked, what do we believe effectively? And I, and I read about it and said, I don't necessarily agree with this, but man, I'm so thankful that they put that out there. What a bold statement of just kind of saying, this is where we are and, the, and this is what we stand for and, and this is the kind of church we are. And so as it began to grow, uh, I went on their website maybe a year or so after that and I checked on their website and I noticed that their, their who we are and what we believe had shrunk considerably. And in shrieking considerably, it really opened up the, the possibility that, oh, yeah, so maybe that's not a big deal for them anymore. Or maybe they're not specializing on that anymore. Or maybe they're not principalizing on that anymore. And so it, it just looked like it was really kind of throwing open the doors a lot more, a lot more accommodating, right? A lot more open, right? And so then last night, out of curiosity, I went to the same church's website and, and pulled it up. And I was curious kind of where they were in their evolution of at least telling people what they believe. I'm not saying they've necessarily shifted off what they believe, but... But the, the internet and, and our website kind of becomes our front door, right? It is our billboard. It's where they can learn about us and learn whether or not this is the place they want to visit. And so I pulled it up and, and you know, anxious, well, not anxious, maybe a strong word, but at least curious to see kind of where they are in this. And I noticed that, man, they completely removed it from their website. You could no longer go there to find out what they believe because they, what they recognized is that an over-articulation of beliefs drives people away, or at least that's the methodology they've engaged in. And this is something we saw a terrific number of churches do in the 90s and early 2000s with the whole idea of the seeker movement, that we want to significantly reduce impediments to people coming to know Jesus. And so we want to have as few distinctions as possible. We want to make it as warm and inviting as possible. But this can present a significant obstacle for us to be faithful to Jesus. Because the gospel is offensive. The gospel, it, it, it just necessarily is offensive. We don't have to be offensive in our presentation of it, but the gospel itself tells people they're dead and in sin, that they're mired in their own trespasses, they've alienated and violated God's holy law. This is offensive. And it, it, it calls on us to engage them with this clear thought. And so Paul begins to talk about what what place uh, the word, or he describes it as prophecy, what place it should serve in the midst of a worship context. He says, but if all prophesy, so they're not speaking in tongues anymore, but, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever and outsider enters, it's the same thing. We're all engaged in a ministry of the word. We're all communicating, we're all leaning in, we're all studying carefully the word, and, and we're putting it forward and saying, this is what God's word says on the basis of that. This is how then we should live. This is what God's word says to you in the midst of this decision. This is what God's word says to you in the midst of that action. This is what God's word says to you in the midst of that mindset. He says, when an unbeliever, an outsider comes in, and this is what they experience, the word of God is unleashed. And being unleashed it convicts all, it calls all to account, and it opens the hearts of all to be disclosed. So what does this require of us corporately? 
corporately, it requires of all of us that we be incredibly clear and upfront with what we believe. That we cannot engage in a bait and switch just to kind of bring people in. And then when we get here, we're like, hey, just so you're clear, like, I, I know we kind of lied on the website a little bit, but, but we actually believe all 66 books of this are inspired and we seek to live our lives by it. I know we totally don't want to be offensive, though. So if that's a big deal for you, I could, I could tear out some maps or something at the back of it. Not, not the map of the city of Jerusalem, though. That's my fave. We have to be upfront. We have to be clear. We have to communicate so precisely who Jesus is. We have to communicate so exactly the consequences of sin. And we have to communicate with winsome compassion about a loving God who desires to know them, who beckons them to come and to follow him. But we begin to think of it, okay, so Matt, it's one thing for us to do this as a church, because that's, that's somewhat impersonal, right? Like I can be a member, I can identify with a church that is going to be forward with a gospel, but it's more difficult when it's required for me as an individual Christian to follow through in this. And I think that's because we have to cross what's referred to by a guy named Rico Rice, who works at a church in England here, first to it is the pain line. And this, this pain line that we have to cross is a significant obstacle and a difficulty. And he addresses it in his book called Honest Evangelism. He's talking about the pain and the difficulty in presenting the gospel and being straightforward with it. And why we don't do it, he says, this really shouldn't surprise us. Think how incendiary uh, how incendiary much of what we believe is, how alarming, how offensive it is. We believe that Jesus is the only way to know God. We believe the cross is the only way to be forgiven. We believe that one day everyone will be judged. Succinctly, he states, so if you're going to talk to people about Jesus, you're going to get hurt. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be abused. He concludes, he says, and we are wired to assume that if we're getting hit, something's gone wrong. If we're getting hurt, something's gone wrong. And so whenever I tell someone the gospel message and get hit, metaphorically speaking, there's a temptation either to stop anything, stop saying anything, or to change to accommodate what I'm saying. And this is what many of us have sought to do. We've sought an accommodational approach to engagement with the gospel. And so we, we long play on relationship and we short circuit gospel engagement, hoping, desiring, possibly someday they'll ask me, what makes you different? And we're hoping to respond with Jesus, but really they want to know why we only ever order tofu instead of real meat. What makes you different? We need to be clear and up front with the gospel, recognizing that Jesus' words to the disciples, that to follow Jesus is to be alienated from this world. And he says in verse 20 of chapter 15 of the gospel of John, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours as well. Sharing the gospel and living a vibrant testimony of faith in Jesus Christ will come to an exacting toll on you personally. It absolutely will. Sharing the gospel is hard. 
It is costly, but as a Christian, as someone who the Bible talks about as being an ambassador for Christ, we quite simply have no other alternative. Amen? But it's hard. But look at what it stands the possibility of doing. Paul tells us that when this person comes in and they hear the gospel declared and they hear the goodness of this God, their own fallenness and rejection and sin and their culpability, their sense of responsibility before him, that they have to atone for their sins and they can't. And because they couldn't, God sent his only son Jesus to die in their stead and then raised, being raised again, he overcame sin and death so that they might be forgiven and they might live in all, for all eternity with God that hearing that gospel message, they are convicted. Notice that what he doesn't say is they modify their behavior. They change how they are. They begin to speak more wholesomely. They begin to, to, to break off immorality. They begin to change themselves overnight. What he says is they are arrested. They are convicted. And they're called to account by all stuck in the middle of their sin and facing the predicament of judgment, they don't know what to do and they find themselves have to, having to hold account to all. He says the secrets of their heart are disclosed. See, the terrifying thing about this is, is that God doesn't merely look down from heaven and observe your actions. That would be scary enough for many of us, but God peers down from heaven and he sees our hearts. Those of us with the most charitable facade sometimes have the most insidious insides. We're close to God with all our outward actions, but we're so incredibly far from, from the inward motivation of our hearts to our inward thoughts to our, the ways we process things. And all these things are laid bare before him. And this is what the gospel stands the risk of doing. It doesn't leave them in despair, but it calls them in receiving forgiveness to fall down and to become a worshiper, to move from a place of fear and of alienation, from fear and ostracism, from fear and anxiety to become a person of worship. When the secrets of their heart are disclosed, they fall on their face and they will worship God. Listen to this, what he says here. For previously, this person would have walked in and said, you guys are crazy, and the subtext is, and I want nothing to do with you. What he says here is, I'm going to fall down on my face, I'm going to worship him, and I'm going to identify with you, because this is the place God is. God really is among you. And I can tell you that he is. He resides here in the hearts of Christians. He resides all over our community in the hearts of men and women gathered to worship him today. And we're so thankful for that. And that's the gospel we want to present to the lost. And that's the gospel we want to be reminded of. The gospel, not of just life modification and high morality that to do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this but a spirit-filled life directed by his Holy Spirit that in our life is working for the conviction of sin, that in our life is working to remind us that we are free of judgment, and that in our life is directing each and every step 
so that we might glorify him. There's a lot of evaluating to do. We have a lot of evaluating and soul searching to see the things that we that are just kind of caught up in our blind spots as a church and things that we are doing that are alienating to lost people. But all of us as individuals need to redouble our efforts to consider things that we are doing that are presenting a significant impediment and a roadblock to the people around us coming to faith in Jesus. This is where Paul would have us to walk. This is how we would seek to honor Jesus together so that people would say in our lives and see in our midst, God really is among you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your gospel, for its clarity, for its conviction that we who are formerly far off and alienated from you, who duly deserve to receive from you your wrath, your judgment, have instead received from you forgiveness, grace, and mercy. And God, that we have received that not on the basis of good deeds done by us, but of a good deed done by Jesus, whom you sent to earth to live a perfectly sinless example in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship, and then to take on the penalty and the punishment for our sin personally so that we might be forgiven, so that we might come to know you. So Father, I want to pray first for anyone in this hearing, in this room, who has not yet responded to Jesus, to his invitation to come and to be forgiven, that today they would seek out one of our members, one of the elders, someone here they know who's a follower of Jesus, and they would just tell them, I want to follow Jesus, show me how. Father, I pray for us as a church that you would help us to evaluate what is timeless and necessary and what is tired, what is an obstacle, what is an impediment. Help us to evaluate these things so that it might be said of us instead of our church, God really is among you. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.